Hello and welcome to another episode of the County Cricket Podcast in association with our friends at Bear Crickets. I'm your host, Aaron, aka the Cricket Connoisseur, and joining me on my left for today's very special episode of TCCP is none other than the chairman of the Kent's Cricket Heritage Trust, Mr. Jonathan Rice. So, Jonathan, first things first, mate, thank you very much for joining me here on the podcast tonight. It's an absolute pleasure to welcome you on for a chat about all things county crickets. I have to ask, mate, how's your day been so far? So far, so average. Um, we've had our ups and downs, but who cares? It's a lovely, it, it, The weather has improved marginally from freezing to slightly less than freezing. So all in all, it's been a good day. Oh, that's good. That is good. And yeah, the weather has been absolutely frightful at the moment, hasn't it, here in the UK? It's been minus temperatures at times. It's been wet. It's been cold. It's been windy. But you know what? As of this recording, we're just 70 days away from the start of the 2023 County Championship. Better weather, better times, and the return of county cricket. No better time of year, is there, Jonathan? No, I have to say that the early days of a county cricket season always fill me with trepidation. A, will you ever get any play at all? Because it, will it be frozen and raining and all that? Sort of, and B, how's the side going to perform? You know, And uh, Kent have not been good at starting in recent seasons. Um uh, although one year I remember I went up to Durham for the for the first game of the season, it would have been 2018, and um, I thought Chesterfield Street is going to be freezing cold. The weather was fantastic, and Kent won in two days. It was absolutely the best start to a season you could imagine. But that doesn't happen very often. No, it certainly doesn't. It's funny you mention early season trepidation and obviously that weather. Goodness me, 2019, it was Kent versus Warwickshire at Edgbaston, and I was sat in the South Stand, so that's the big one, for those who don't know, at Edgbaston, it's the one with the media centre, and that has to be probably either the coldest or the second coldest I've ever been at a game of cricket. Ollie Robinson scored a, a, a century against us, I believe, actually, on my 18th birthday, so thanks for that, Ollie, but... Yeah, that, that match was absolutely freezing. I think Matt Renshaw was wearing hand warmers and gloves and he was in a little beanie hat as well. April cricket is very interesting, isn't it, Jonathan? But then again, at the same time, it is absolutely superb. Oh, yeah. yeah I mean, it just, just to be back and watching them out there playing cricket, and even though they are, as you say, usually hands in pockets or hands clasped under armpits, hoping that they're going to get a little bit warmer somehow, uh, it's uh, nevertheless wonderful just to see, to think to yourself, oh, we've got a whole summer of this. This is great. Exactly. And it promises to be a wonderful summer. And obviously, for those of you who are new to the County Cricket Podcast, we will be covering all three of the major County Cricket competitions right here on this platform, across the podcast, and of course, on social media. So feel free to give us a follow while you're listening to today's episode. But talking of today's content, actually, we are actually discussing modern county crickets. This is, of course, episode five of our County Heritage series. So on this series so far, we've covered the likes of the 1911 Warwickshire side, the 1936 Derbyshire side, the Nottinghamshire side of 1929, and the Glamorgan team of 1948. But for today's episode, I thought we'd discuss a very interesting side, a dominant side actually, in the early days of county cricket, and that is the Kent side of 1910. And Jonathan, who better to get on for today's episode than yourself and experts on all things Kent cricket to discuss one of the most dominant sides of Edwardian cricket. So first things first, I suppose, in the years leading up to 1910, Jonathan, how would you describe Kent's performances 
in the county championship. Was there anything at all to suggest that Kent would go on to win the county championship again in 1910? Well, um, the answer is yes. I mean, we'd won it first time in 1906, and that was really the key moment. Lord Harris, who had been the president, chairman, secretary, captain, Uncle Tom Cobley and all of Kent Cricket since um, the, the, the club was founded in 1870, um, he had this one ambition, which was to win the county championship. And um, we had never really come very near. The key moment was towards the end of the 19th century when the Tunbridge nursery was established under a, the direction of a chap called William McCandless, Captain McCandless. And he... That was the sort of first cricket academy, really. I mean, they got the promising young cricketers um, from around the county and gave them some specialist training and coaching. And from that, um, uh, from that nursery, we had many great players. Frank Woolley was the obvious one. Colin Blythe, another astonishingly brilliant cricketer. Um, people like James Seymour and, and one or two others who really um, came good in the early years of the 20th century. And so in 1906, when we won for the first time, that was a bit of a surprise. Um, it was actually Frank Woolley's first season with us. Um, and it was a bit of a surprise that we won it, but we did. And of course, Lord Harris was absolutely delighted. And um, the number of celebrationary dinners and prizes and, and memorabilia that were dished out after that was astonishing, including um, uh, the commissioning of a painting, Kent v. Lancashire, 1906, which um, became, when it was sold in 2006, the most expensive cricket painting ever, ever sold. Um, so after that, we really, I mean, Kent felt we had a very, very good side. And um, as certainly Frank Woolley, I think, was the key person and Colin Blythe, they were the two who made, meant that the bowling attack was the best in, in Britain. Um, and there was nobody was going to um, score a lot of runs against us, we didn't think. Um, and uh, then we had the batsmen, um, who were mainly the amateurs. Kent, in those days, there wasn't a written rule, but they had this um, basic unwritten rule that Kent would always play at least five amateurs in the side. Um, and so uh, the batsmen, mainly, I mean, Amateurs turned out to be, um, you know, the, the amateurs batted and the, and the poor professionals had to bowl at them. And um, uh, so uh, we had some great amateur batsmen, um, notably, um, well, there was, there, um, I suppose, Kenneth Hutchings was the one who was the, the, the sort of most, uh, the one who captured the imagination most. But there were some other um, very fine ones. There was a, a Pinky Burnup, who was um, uh, a a great footballer as well. Ted Dillon, who became captain by 1910, who was a great, he was an international rugby player as well. Um, there were the Day brothers um, and uh, Jack Mason, who was an all-rounder, but um, there were an, a number of people who came in, you know, when their work commitments would allow them to, but tended to score lots of runs. So we have, and we had also, we had one of the first great Kent wicketkeepers. Um, Fred Hewish, who was getting towards the end of his career at this time, but but he was probably the first in the line of the great Kent wicketkeepers. And um, so we had a very, very strong side, um, which 
over the years between 1906 and, and the First World War just got that little bit stronger, really, um, as players became more experienced and one or two new ones came into the side. And so, you know, um, at the beginning of 1910, having won it in 1909, not desperately convincingly, but nevertheless having won it, 1910, there was high confidence, no doubt. And rightfully so, because that Kent sides were quite magnificent, weren't they? From top to bottom, stacked with talented cricketers, some of whom would go on to be absolute greats of the club, even up to the modern day. The likes of Frank, Willie and Colin Blythe, two names synonymous with the white horse of Kent County Cricket Club. And Jonathan, you mentioned beforehand the, the Tunbridge Nursery. Now, this is a very interesting part of the background story behind this success. Because, as you rightfully said, this was arguably one of the world's first ever cricketing academies. A number of this Kent side came through that system under the guidance of Captain McCandless. So before we discuss the nursery and the importance in regards to this season, what can you tell me about Captain McCandless? Because from my research, he seems like a very interesting character. Yes, he, he was he was a... Like all the best coaches, he was a good cricketer without being a great one. I, I, I think if you look through the history of, of cricket and coaching, the, those cricketers who have succeeded as players without really having to worry because they were just so good, the, the Ian Bothams, the Brian Laras of this world, um, aren't much good at coaching because they haven't ever needed to work out how to how to get things right. They've just done it. Um Whereas, um, and the same applies in football, someone like, you know, Bobby Charlton was a pretty useless um, manager, by, despite having been one of the great footballers of all time. And um, so I think that um, uh, McCandless, who, who had a, I don't know what his statistics are off the top of my head, but he had, he played a few games for Kent and was a good cricketer without being in any way a great one. But he knew the mechanics of cricket. And he was a very good organiser and a very good motivator. And um, he, the, the, the youngsters who came into his, his um, nursery um, really responded to him. And um, for many, many years, he, he ran that academy um, and uh, was very, very important part of the success of Kent in the early years of the, of the 20th century. He most certainly was, and he worked alongside the likes of George Webb. He was from Tunbridge School, and Harry Day, he was the groundsman yeah. in Tunbridge as well. So they started this in 1897, and then he joined the nursery full-time from 1900 onwards. So this was almost the, the seed being planted, wasn't it, for that decade of dominance in this early stage of county cricket's history. And talking of some of those cricketers who came through that academy system, that nursery setup. Jonathan, I suppose we have to look at the season itself and we have to discuss and, and go into more detail some of the key moments and the key players from this most extraordinary of county championship victories. So we'll start first and foremost with the opening game of the season, mm -hmm. which saw Kent absolutely annihilate Middlesex by an innings and 138 runs at the home of cricket, Lord's Cricket Ground. Now, in this game, Ted Dillon, the captain, scored 115 runs. And before we talk about the likes of Frank Woolley and Colin Blythe, Jonathan, I wanted to talk about Ted Dillon. He's arguably Kent's greatest ever captain, isn't he? He's the only Kent captain to ever lift the county championship on multiple occasions. And in this era, he really was one of the great leaders in county cricket. So 
What can you tell me about Ted Dillon, the cricketer, and more importantly, Ted Dillon, the captain? Well, Ted Dillon was was um, a uh, a natural sportsman. He was um, from a, a good, a, a well-to-do family. I'm not saying they're necessarily good. They were, I think, but uh, they were a well-to-do family. He was educated at rugby school, um, and he um, then went up to university and and played um, a number. I'm trying to work out. Hold on, I've just got the information here that I will uh, try and. Uh, um, try and get that right, but yes, he was. Um, he he went up to university and uh, at Oxford and um, won his blue a couple of times and played for Kent a few times in the periods. You know when he um, <laughs> like many Kent cricketers, well, not like many Kent cricketers, but um, like Colin Cowdery, for example, he never completed his degree at, at um, Oxford. He played. He was there for three years, but uh, didn't. I don't think took his exams at the end. He'd he'd spent too much time playing cricket and rugby, um, and um, so left without a degree. But um, on the lines of Mike Brearley, he had a degree in people. He was um, a, a, a batsman, not of the absolute highest quality. He was a very good county batsman, but he wasn't. You would never compare him with with even Kenneth Hutchins in that team or um, um, Burnup, his his opening partner, was probably a better batsman. But he was, um, as a leader, he was remarkable. He was very, very popular. I mean, it's, it's difficult to, you know, I, I, uh, there is no way of knowing how he led people on the pitch from first-hand experience, you know. I mean, there's nobody around to tell us. But, but reading the history books, reading the, the minute books of the committees who were praising him an awful lot, which they didn't need to do, and a lot of subsequent captains haven't been praised in, in committee meeting minute books, I can assure you. Um, he was uh, obviously a man who knew how to handle the team. And because we had this thing where, you know, there were sort of five or six amateurs in each side and five or six professionals, there could have been a big division of you know, of, of opinion there. And there could have been a lot of um, uh, conflict if he hadn't handled it properly. But he was he was not afraid at all to ask his senior professionals, notably Hewish, the wicketkeeper, and Colin Blythe and um, Arthur Fielder, the opening bowler, um, their opinion uh, at all or at any time, really. So he was um, he was very popular for the fact that he treated all 11 players as human beings rather than as, as some captains did in those days uh, as the jolly good chaps and the, and the, and the proletariat. Um, so we had, um, we had that advantage, I think, that the Kent team was always, under his captaincy, a very, very united 11. Um, and that, that, I think, is probably the secret to his success. Um, Lord Harris, who was the chairman at the time, was much more of an autocratic, aristocratic person. But he also, interestingly, was very popular with the players because he 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 played so well. He was an England cricketer as well. Um, so he he understood the, the mentality and motivation of the cricketers. So throughout the club, um, you had this sympathy for um, the cricketers and the way they played. And of course, Captain McCandless fed into this as well. He was very much uh, a person that, that was highly respected and, and highly liked 
by the playing staff. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that, actually, Jonathan, the, the fact that he was able to unite that dressing room because some people might not be aware of this. I'm not sure, actually, if I discuss this in, a, in, in, in enough detail on the, in the Warwickshire podcast, but in Edwardian crickets, you do find this almost divide between players, don't you, of amateurs and professionals. And for those who aren't quite au fait or familiar with this era of cricket, could you just give us a little bit more background behind what those terms actually mean? Because we're almost assuming that people out there might know this. But I suppose well, if you're new to cricket, it's, it's a completely new new term, isn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, of course it is. But I, 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 up until 19, the end of 1962, uh, which is when the distinction between amateurs and, and um, professionals was, was, was abolished, um, there were the two classes of cricketer. The amateurs, that meant that they weren't paid. They played when they could and they, and they enjoyed it. But basically, the club got their services for free. Um, like, you know, playing for the village on a, sun, on a Sunday afternoon. Um, uh, I've done that for years and years and years, and I've never been paid for it. <laughs> Sometimes people want to pay me to stay away, but that's a different thing. Um, the, uh, um, whereas the professionals were paid. And, of course, if you could... Uh, even then, the professionals were paid. They had a contract for the summer. They didn't have anything for the winter. So in the winter, they had to go off and find another job. Um, if they were sufficiently good, they might get selected for an overseas tour. But in those early days, there weren't that many of them anyway. So you had this, this uh, the, the professionals who was very much, they were the servants of the club. Um, and they were given a salary which wasn't very much, um, but they were treated... They were treated very well um, in terms of things like, I mean, the rewards that came at the end of at the end of the 1909 season. Everybody who had played for the club was given brass um, brass candlesticks as a as a souvenir, and that went for the amateurs and the professionals. Um, and so they they were treated quite well in that way. But um, for example, um, the professionals when they had their benefit which they desperately needed because they didn't have much money and they didn't have a winter job and all the rest of it. The benefits were looked after by the club committee. And, you know, sort of, so somebody got a thousand pounds, which in those days would have been a very big amount of money. And the club committee would say, okay, we're looking after this thousand pounds for you, Mr. Smith. Um, uh, and we'll tell you what, what you can do with it and what you can have, you know. And it wasn't until actually an, a, another Kent uh, professional James Seymour um, challenged the taxman by um, the, because the taxman said that that it was part, that the benefit was part of their earnings and therefore they had to pay tax on the benefit and he said no it isn't it's a gift um, and therefore I don't have to pay tax on it um, and with the support of Lord Harris he won his court case against the taxman and from then on benefits were not taxed. Um, until George Osborne came along and changed it a bit in the, in, a few years ago. Um, but uh, the professionals did rely very much on the... Uh, they, re they relied on being kept in the side. They had to work very hard to be in the side because, I mean, they were on a contract for the year, but every year that would be, you know, at the end of... September, they'd be told, thank you very much, Mr. Snooks. Um, um, we'll let you know whether we want to see you in the spring. And they didn't know 
there was a there was a very uncertain life. A lot of them in those days, you could mix cricket and football, of course. So um, there were a number who played football in the winter as professionals again. But that distinction between the unpaid amateur and the paid professional lasted right up until 1962, as I said. And and um, Lord Hawke, who was the chairman of Yorkshire and a great friend of Lord Harris, was famously quoted as saying, I pray God that no professional will ever captain England, um, which uh, meant that, for example, when they wanted to appoint Wally Hammond as England captain just after the, or just before the war, sorry, he had ch he changed his status from amateur, to, from, from professional to amateur so that he could he could uh, captain and he was given a job within the cricket world that gave him the money that he needed to, to be able to work, to play as an amateur. There were lots of other cases. I mean, Trevor Bailey um, played as an amateur, but actually he was secretary or nominally secretary of Essex CCC um, as well. So that's where he earned his money. And um, it wasn't until after 62 they said, this is ridiculous. We must just have one class cricketer. And that's that's ever since then, people have just been cricketers, even if they are very, very wealthy. And, you you know, there are a number of cricketers who uh, come from very wealthy families. I'm thinking in Kent terms, someone like Matthew Fleming, who didn't need to have uh, a salary, um, but played as a cricketer. Um, and, there, you know, so whatever your background now, you you earn a salary. And um, that's fair. I mean, it's the only way. If you're doing if you're doing the work, you ought to be paid. But uh, in the in the Edwardian days, there were plenty of people who had a job as a. They were usually lawyers, stockbrokers, things like that, and um, they could afford just to take days off to play uh, a, a game of county cricket and without having to be paid. And of course, the clubs liked that because it was cheaper than than um, having to pay eleven professionals. Well, of course, and it wasn't until the 1950s, was it really? I mean, I think that Warwickshire team of 1951, that was a full professional side. Yeah, where well, professionalisation of the game really started to come to the forefront. Mm, but it was Tom Dollery, wasn't it, who, who was the first professional captain to win the championship. Um, uh, so, uh, but nowadays, of course, I mean, even even in later later on, I mean, some someone like, uh, well, not that much later on, but I mean, Stuart Surridge and Peter May at Surrey in the 50s when they won, they were both amateurs. Um, Yorkshire were determined to, to stick with their amateurs right up until the end. And they would often draft in the second 11 captain to be captain of the first 11 if they couldn't find uh, a suitable amateur in from among the, the first team. I'll tell you what, cricket really has changed, hasn't it? But you know what, for the better on that front, definitely, because cricket's a lot more open in terms of of that capacity now and talking of those professionals then back in 1910 one of the most interesting characters in this side and someone who I, I've learned a lot about in recent months was a man by the name of Colin Blythe mm -hmm. now in that game as I mentioned against Middlesex at Lords Blythe took six for 27 from 18.2 overs in the first innings so he got off to a fantastic start to this season and when you look at Kent's records, Blythe is the second all-time leading wicket-taker of this prestigious county cricket club. He is a legend of the White Horse. Mm. And Jonathan, seeing as you have that connection with the Heritage Trust, I thought you'd be a fantastic guest to have on to discuss this man because he's got a very interesting cricketing legacy, hasn't he? So in terms of Colin Blythe, not just in the 1910 season, 
but in his entire Kent career. How would you describe the man? And secondly, how would you describe Colin Blythe, the bowler? <laughs> well, you run out of superlatives whichever way you look at it, you look at him. Um, he was, it's a very interesting fact. You say he's the second most um, prolific wicket taker in Kent's history, which is true. The only one ahead of him is Titch Freeman. But the top five bowlers on Kent's list are all bowlers who turn the ball away from the right-handed batsman. So we have three left arm spinners and two leg break bowlers. And um, uh, it seems that, you know, don't bowl off breaks if you want to come to, if you want to get a place in the Kent, in the Kent team. Um, well, don't bowl quick either. We, Kent are uses of producing fast bowlers. We're, I mean, uh, over the years, you could name about three and that would be it. But uh, back to Colin Blythe, um, he um, was a, a very interesting man. He was discovered um, at Blackheath. Kent were playing at Blackheath and he was bowling. He, he just came along to watch and um, he got a chance to bowl in the nets to one of the Kent batsmen who before the day started. And Captain McCandless was sort of, you know, just watching. And he thought, well, this lad's quite good. So he offered him a place at uh, the Kent nurse, the, the, the Tunbridge nursery. And um, it all developed from there. He, uh, he was a left arm spin bowler, not much of a batsman, but, you know, not a complete um, uh, rabbit. But he, as a bowler, he was in an era when there were some very good left arm spinners, notably Wilfred Rhodes of, of Yorkshire. Um, I mean, on his day, the batsman of the time said he was the most, um, the most difficult to play. He had a major health issue. He was epileptic. And that meant in those days when the, the control of epilepsy was much more, uh, well, there really wasn't much. You just had to sort of live through it, I think. Um, he was... Off, he often had matches where he either was just not physically capable of playing particularly well, or he had to miss the game altogether. Um, so he 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 was. And that's not right to say he was unreliable because it wasn't his fault at all. But but it it was astonishing that despite his epilepsy, he bowled for so long and so well. As a left arm bowler, he was he had the gift of accuracy. He had the gift of subtle changes of pace, um, and he just wore the other the batsman down. Very often he opened the bowling, and very often he bowled right through the innings. Um, it, it because he was so good. Um, why not? Um, I mean, you'd, you'd often get cases where Arthur Fielder, the, the the quick bowler, would open the bowling at one end and and Colin Blythe at the other. Um, and he also was a very fine musician. He um, uh, played violin uh, at a semi-professional level. And um, so he had, uh, I was going to say lots of strings to his bow, but that, that's a pretty obvious pun, and I apologize for it. Um, but he was um, uh, a very interesting man uh, with much more to him than just the ability to bowl um, slow left arm. Uh, I mean, of course, the, the story that I suspect most people know is that he was killed in the, in the uh, First World War um, he had announced his retirement at the end of the 1918 season because he was then in his late 30s. Um, so in theory, he was no longer um, an active cricketer. Uh, sorry, the end of the 1914 season, what am I talking about? Um, but um, 
he joined, despite being, I think, 37 at the time, he immediately joined up um, to, to fight, even though he was he didn't at that age have to. Um, and he and Claude Woolley, Frank Woolley's brother, who, who were, they were great friends. Claude Woolley had played for Kent second 11, but then couldn't get into the first team and moved up to Northamptonshire where he had a long career. But um, uh, they both joined up and uh, Colin Blythe was killed on the, uh, in November of 1917 at Passchendaele. Um, he was shot, I um, mean, a, a sniper's bullet got him. And um, we still have in our collection his um, uh, uh, wallet with the bullet hole in it, uh, and uh, uh, also a copy of his last will and testament, um, which is a fairly gory thing. But when he died, um, the outpouring of affection for him was astonishing. There was a big collection made for his widow, um, and what Kent then did is put up the uh, a memorial to him, which is still there in, in uh, at the St Lawrence ground, the Blythe Memorial, which which memorialises him and all the other cricketers who were killed in the in the First World War, and then in the Second World War we added those names as well. But the tributes to him were clearly show how how very very popular he was and and what a good man he was so i mean he was i mean <laughs> derek underwood i suppose you would say as a left arm bowler from kent might match him um and frank woolley of course is another one who who um uh, took an awful lot of wickets with his left arm bowling but um uh, derek underwood was definitely quicker he bowled much much quicker through the air um although still with the same nagging, um, nagging accuracy. Um, but as a sort of uh, a regulation, a standard left arm spin bowler, uh, it's difficult to imagine anyone these days being anywhere near as good as Colin Blythe was. He had the advantage, of course, of, of, of um, uncovered wickets, which um, so did Derek Underwood in the start of his career. But... Um, that which meant that sometimes batsmen had to bat on pitches that were, you know, virtually impossible to bat on. But um, he still did better than anybody else under those circumstances. It wasn't as though it was just um, money for old rope. He, he was he was a wonderful, wonderful uh, bowler. And reading everything that one reads about him, you just say, wow, what a, what a chap, what an amazing man. Well, Jonathan, I'd completely agree with that, to be honest, because his story really did inspire me for this series. I had to get a mention for him at some point in this Heritage podcast series because he just had a wonderful story. He was a much-loved member of that team. And in terms of cricket greats, he's got to be up there. We mentioned beforehand Kent's second all-time leading wicket-taker with 2,210 wickets. As an average of 16.67. And in 19 tests for England, he took 100 wickets at an average sub-20. Colin Blythe really is a great of the game of cricket. And it's just a shame and incredibly sad as to how his life ended at Passchendaele in 1917. But the legacy of the great man certainly does live on. And you mentioned earlier as well, Jonathan, that opening partnership that he had with the ball with a man by the name of Arthur Fielder. Now, as opposed to Blythe and Woolley, who are two names synonymous with Kent, I haven't heard many people mention the name Arthur Fielder 
I think in terms of Kent's cricket history, he's a little bit of a hidden gem for most people. So what can you tell me about Arthur Fielder as a bowler? Because just heading back to that that season, I suppose, of 1910, after the second game, which was a draw at Lancashire, Kent hammered Northants by 241 runs at Wantage Road, in which Fielder took match figures of 12 for 76 from 35.1 overs, seven of which came in the second inning. So what can you tell me about the man, Arthur Fielder? Well, he was... Um, there's, there's an uh, amusing story um, about him. Uh, the the, the Kentby Lancashire painting, uh, um, 1906 um, painting, has it shows every member of the Kent side and, and underneath the, the painting are little brass um, things giving the name of each fielder as it goes along. And, and it says, it says, you know, J. Mason, C. Blythe, um, you know, all those. And then it says A. Fielder. And someone said, that's a bit unfair on this chap. <laughs> why doesn't, why don't they give him his name? And just rather than calling him a fielder. And then we had to point out that this is Arthur Fielder. Um, he was, um, born in 1877 so by the time of 1910 he was um what does that make him 33 um he came from um the little village of Plaxtoll, which is near um between sort of Maidstone and Tunbridge I suppose um I know it quite well because my granddaughter plays cricket there but um uh it's uh his his family worked on the on the on the nearby hop farm, so he was he was from basic agricultural stock. Um, but he was always um, a very keen cricketer, and he 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 joined the, the McCandless Nursery um, in eighteen ninety seven when he was twenty, or pro- probably well, his birthday was in the middle of the summer, so I imagine he was nearly twenty when he joined. Um, but he um, he uh, didn't play for the first team until nineteen hundred. He then became, um, he was sort of in and out of the side for a while. One of the things about Kent, for some reason, we just haven't produced fast bowlers. And Arthur Fielder, uh, among a fairly undistinguished bunch, is probably one of the top two or three. Um, uh, He played, um, uh, well, for a a long while, basically. But um, he, um, he, um, he was the the only solid fast bowler that we had um, in really right up until the, the, the First World War. There was a chap, for example, called Pat Morphy, who played um, a few games for Kent around this time, 1910, 1911. Um, and he was very, very quick, but he also had a very quick temper. And um, he used to take, uh, he used to um, uh, mock the, uh, the, the, the chairman Lord Harris, who didn't really appreciate that too much. And uh, he felt he wasn't being paid enough. So he went up and joined, played in the Lancashire Leagues for many, many years, earning more money. Um, which is an interesting thought, actually, because in those days, professional cricketers, if they were prepared to, and they were good enough, could earn more money in the Lancashire Leagues than they could playing for their counties. Um, and so he, so he was an example of someone who didn't last very long as a fast bowler. But Arthur Fielder just went on and on and on. He... Um, was he was picked um, for England a few times. I'm trying to remember off the top of my head, but he 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 went on the tour of Australia in 0304. Um, and he was deemed to be, you know, one of in a again in an era where there weren't that many fast bowlers in England who were who were unbelievably great. You don't think of that as a period where um, fast bowling dominated. Um, he 
he was you know up there with the best of them. He um, also held the um, he and um, Frank Woolley um, put on a last wicket stand. Um, I'm trying to again. I'm, I'm I'm talking off the top of my head here, but um, uh, their last wicket stand, and I think it was 1909. Actually, um, he was. Um, I mean, he wasn't much of a batsman, but in 1909 against Worcestershire at Stourbridge, uh, Kent were on 320 for nine, facing Worcestershire first total of 360, and Worcestershire were pretty rubbish in those days. Um, fortunately, the man at the other end was Frank Woolley. Um, and so uh, they basically, Fielder started to lay about himself. And by the end, close of play, only an hour later, Kent were on 439 for nine, having put on well over 100, with Fielder on 67 not out. Um, and he'd scored those runs out of 119, batting with Frank Woolley. So you can see he was really going well. And, then, and the next morning they carried on. Woolley was finally out for 185 and Fielder was left not out with 112, his only century. And um, he was, uh, they put on 235 for the last wicket, which is still a last wicket partnership record for the county championship. And that's, um, I suppose it's one of the ways he's most remembered now, which is a bit of bad luck because he was, a, frankly, not a very good batsman. I mean, he, he deserved to be at number 11. Um, he only batted at number 11 because there weren't 12 people in the side. Um, and uh, he, but, you know, as a bowler, he was uh, extremely effective. He's the only man in the history of the gentlemen v. players game, which, of course, was amateurs v. professionals, um, to have taken all 10 wickets in innings in the entire history of that game, which went on for 150 years, roughly. He was the only person ever to take all 10 wickets in innings in that game. So he was good, um, and he was very popular as well. He was, he was, uh, as his background would suggest, he was rather more rustic and uh, um, not. I uh, wouldn't say you know he was desperately sophisticated, but he was a good man and and very much appreciated by his teammates, as he should have been as well. Because in that season, he did take seventy-seven wickets for Kent mm. over the course of four hundred and eighty-one point one overs. He was Kent's third leading wicket taker over the course of the season, behind Colin Blythe and Frank Woolley. And Jonathan, we are almost 40 minutes into today's podcast, and we haven't really discussed one of Kent's all-time greats, if not the absolute greatest cricketers ever in the history of this club. And that is, of course, the great Frank Woolley. Now, Woolley, at this moment in his career, wasn't exactly experienced, was he? In fact, he had debuted in 1906, and this was just his his fifth season in county cricket in 1910, but goodness me, he went on to have quite the career in a Kent oh, yeah. shirt, didn't he? Oh, well, I mean, in, in any shirt, he was, um, he, he played his first test match in 1909 and he wasn't dropped from the England side until um, uh, the late twenties. And I, and I, I know that there were, I mean, every single game that England played, he was, he was in the side um, that include, you know, wartime included. Um, so, uh, and, I mean, to say that he was the greatest cricketer that, that that played for Kent is understating it. I think, I mean, the figures show he was the greatest cricketer that's ever walked this earth. Um, uh, he, I mean, I've, I didn't see him play. I would obviously, <laughs> he retired um, even before I was around. But um, to score 55,000 runs nearly, um, second only to Jack Hobbs, to, in first-class cricket, of course, to take... 
2,500 wickets or so um, in first-class cricket and to be the only cricketer who's caught over a 1,000 catches. Um, I know he had a long career, but even so, that is astonishing. I mean, my favourite statistic of him is that on his 50th birthday, he took a fiver for Kent on his 50th birthday. He, I mean, he went on and on and on, and he was a... I mean, he just was a legend. I mean, he was um, he was also, as a left-handed batsman, you can read any article written about him when he was playing, and everybody will say he was the most beautiful stroke player. He made, you know, David Gower look like a hacker. He was he was um a really just just to watch him bat was was beautiful. His his bowling was um uh, he modelled himself originally on on Colin Blythe because you know um, that was uh, the hero that he had up against him, and and he was a left-handed bowler as well. But it, but as time went on, it he became a little bit quicker, a little bit more slingy in his action, um, and uh, but he was still very very effective. Um, they say that he got more swing into his bowling as as he grew a little bit uh, older, but. Um, as a player, as you say, he he made his debut for Kent in 1906, and he uh, after I mean he did very very well in that season. But and and I think um, Wisdom noted that you uh, uh, the young Colt Woolley is worth watching. I think is what they said or something like that. Um, but uh, he was just a spectacularly gifted cricketer. He had he was one of three brothers. Um, his Younger brother Claude, as I mentioned earlier, um, played for the second eleven for Kent, but didn't quite make it. So he went up to Northamptonshire, where he had a long, um, a long um, career after the war, and well, before and after the war. And um, the other brother didn't play first-class cricket because apparently um, he suffered some muscle injury fairly early on in his, uh, you know, in his teenage years, and therefore was never quite fit enough to play. But his, but Frank always said he would have been the best. Um, so that's a frightening prospect. Um, and uh, he was, you know, I mean, he was a, a local Kent man um, from Tunbridge Wells, and he um, was a cricketer who, in, still in Kent, you know, I mean, we've got the Frank Woolley stand still in Kent and, and um, uh, at the ground. And I mean, he is, you know, people say, oh, Darren Stevens, he must be the greatest all rounder that Kent's ever known. Well, I'm. I'm second to none in my in my devotion to, to Steve O's brilliance, but there's no comparison. There's just no comparison. <laughs> you never know, Jonathan, if Steve O goes on to the age of sixty, well, he could be up there. <laughs> he might be. He might be. Steve O is a lovely guy and an absolutely brilliant cricketer. And there's not uh, one of the most joyful days I've spent was watching him hit 190 off Glamorgan a couple of seasons ago in about ten minutes. And um, it, it, I mean, he just is. I mean, he is quite rightly a Kent legend, but but you look at the figures and nothing can compare with, with Frank Woolley. Well, he's certainly up there, isn't he, in terms of not just Kent's all-time greats, but the game's greats. He is a titan mm. of first-class cricket. I mean, Surrey fans, they'd go to the great one, wouldn't they? Jack Hobbs, I think they'd probably argue with that. You could have some, some interesting debates and discussions there, but Frank Woolley, an mm. extraordinary cricketer, a, a generational talent, in more ways than one, with the bat in hand, he was such an elegant, aesthetically pleasing stroke maker. And then also a very potent wicket taker, something which 
I didn't actually mention beforehand, he is Kent's fifth leading wicket taker of mm. all time in first class cricket with 1,680 wickets at 18.84. So, Frank Woolley, if you don't know about this man, honestly, just Google him. Just Google him and just read some of the stories. He's one of the most interesting cricketers of all time and someone who just made the game look so easy, whether that was with the bat, the ball, even in the field. Frank Woolley, honestly, what a man and quite rightfully so, still honoured at Kent County Cricket Club, even up to the modern day. But Jonathan, aside from the bowling, because right there, actually, we, we focus predominantly on the bowlers of this side. And you mentioned this right at the beginning of the podcast, but Kent in the late 1900s, early 1910s, really were characterised by that dominant bowling force with the likes of Blythe, Woolley and Fielder. But we haven't really discussed the batting unit, aside from the captain, Ted Dillon. So I suppose in that capacity, who were the key performers with the bat in hand over the course of this season? Well, um, there were Kenneth Hutchins. Um, I suppose it was one of his best seasons uh, in, in 1910. He was a, a right-handed bat, but another um, spectacularly um, a very good-looking bat to look at and he was he was um from a very well-to-do background he was an amateur um he played when he could um and fortunately in, in 1910 he could a lot um and he was uh, probably the one that they looked to 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 build an innings around so to speak um he was uh, another person who very sadly died in the first world war um and he probably would have gone on to even greater things. Um, there was, uh, I suppose, um, Jack Mason, you have to mention. He had been, uh, he was a little bit older than the rest of them. He'd been playing since uh, the turn of the century. Um, he was uh, also, uh, he was deemed to be Kent's best all-rounder until Woolley came along. Um, but he was mainly a batting all-rounder. And um, he scored a lot of runs um, for the county. Um, but again, was only sporadically available. He wasn't there all the time. If you wanted to look for the ones who made the runs in, who were there, you knew they were going to be there. There was James Seymour, a professional. Um, he uh, was, I mean, he had a long career, very long career with Kent. Um, and he was a very solid middle order batsman. He didn't ever really set the world on fire. And he certainly never played for England, which is, he was perhaps a bit unlucky not to get an England, even one England cap. But he was also a spectacularly good close fielder um, and took, I forget what the total number of catches he took for Kent in the end is, but it's a lot. Um, and uh, he was a very solid member of the side. He wasn't he wasn't one who, who smacked the ball everywhere. Um, he wouldn't have been much good at Baz ball, but he's um, uh, certainly... Um, was what Kent needed to, to, you know, if they were in any trouble, Seymour was the one to try and bolster their their um, uh, innings uh, in, you know, in, in to, to, to ward off the bad bits of, of uh, the difficult bits of bowling that were coming that were coming at them. Um, then there were um, there was the Day brothers, Sammy and Arthur Day. Um, they were again amateurs who who um did um <clears throat> uh, who played when they could 
AP Day played for England. I can't, I'm honestly, I'm, I'm talking off the top of my head here. Um, I should have uh, written it down, but um, uh, they were they were both um, regular, as regular as they could be members of the, of the batting lineup. Um, and then the other, um, I suppose the other professional was um, Punter Humphreys. Um, he had a long career. He was very young at this stage. He'd only just come into, into the side. Um, but he, uh, he he was he he lived a very long life, and I and I remember talking to um, uh, the late Derek Ufton about him because uh, he Punter was still coaching at Kent when Derek first joined um, immediately after the war, the Second World War, and I said, well, why was he called Punter? And he said, was it because he he liked to bet? And he said, no, 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 he hated betting. You know, <laughs> nobody knew why he was called Punter, even he didn't. But uh, he was always known as Punter Humphreys. And he had a long career. He also bowled a lot. Um, and uh, But he was a, a, a solid batsman too. Um, it, I mean, and of course, there was Frank Woolley, who um, worked his way up the batting order from about number seven or eight when he started. And by, the, by 1910, he was certainly... Um, in the middle order and, and making a lot of runs. So we had a pretty solid uh, batting lineup as well. Um, and there was a chap called um, Charles Hooman who played only in 1910, actually. He was a, an Oxford University graduate. or he, I don't think he graduated then, but anyway, after, at, the, at the end of the Oxford University term, when he'd had a very good year for Oxford making lots of runs, he came into the Kent side and played for the rest of the summer for Kent. And then never played again for, for the county. So he, he he for half of nineteen ten he was in the side without doing anything particularly spectacular. And then he went back to university, and I suppose you know he, whatever his business career was took him took him away from Kent cricket. Um, so they were the they were the main ones, I suppose. Um, one or two others came in, uh, you know, and played here and there. Have I missed anybody out? You'll probably know better than I do. To be honest, Jonathan, no. I mean, I think you've actually covered the main cast of characters mm. there, and a couple of those stories are just reasons why I love this series on the podcast. This is why I love County Cricket Heritage, because there really have been some very interesting characters in County Cricket over the years. The fact that Charles Hooman was in that side for 1910, and then, as you said, never played County Cricket again, is quite hilarious, because yeah. he came in, won a county championship, <laughs> and then exited the game, and... You you actually answered my question beforehand, before I actually got the chance to answer to to ask it in the first place, and that was about Punter Humphreys, because I had no idea why he was called Punter, no and one. no one did then. No, no, you have to you have join join the crowd. Nobody has never nobody's ever explained to me, and and I took Derek Upton's word as being the best because he actually knew Punter Humphreys, and and uh, uh, he didn't know. So all I can say is that uh, uh, it, it's a mystery. But um, he was, you know, he uh, for a long while. He, he I mean, he was a, a pillar of the Kent side. And it's interesting because um, uh, if you look at how things went on after 1910, obviously we missed the title in 1911. Some other county won it. Then I can't remember who that was. Um, and they won it by by something like 0.28 of a of a, of a decimal point or something. They changed the way of, of calculating. Um, the uh, way that the, the points for the for each game, and um, uh, if, if if they'd stuck with the 1910 way of calculating, then I'm afraid Kent would have won again. But never mind. Um, we didn't win that year, 
but we um, and then we kept, that was second. Then we were third in in 1912, and then we won again in 1913, again under Ted Dillon with broad, broadly the same side. Then 14 we didn't win. Then you had the war, and what's interesting to see is that the rather sort of production line of of really talented players from the the Tunbridge Nursery. Um, seemed to dry up a bit at this stage. There, there were lots of minor names who came through and played a few games, but there was nobody like, um, uh, you know, like like Woolley and Blythe and, and Fielder and 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 um, uh, Humphreys who came through and Seymour who came through in that next period. And the net result was that in after the after the war, really, from between the between the two wars, Kent were never anything much more than an average county side. They were never terrible, but they were never really very good. And actually, it's interesting because um, uh, between the wars, with the exception of Middlesex, who won it a couple of times um, immediately after the war, it was northern clubs. No, I mean, you know, it was, it was Lancashire and Yorkshire mainly, and Derbyshire won it once. Um, and that was about it. Um, Nottinghamshire won it once as well. So um, the, 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 the power of cricket that had been down in the southeast with Kent had switched definitely um, up to the north um, after the war. And it wasn't really until Surrey started winning in the 50s um, that, uh, that it, it, the, the power started to drag back, um, back south again. Well, Jonathan, we'll discuss that in due course because I think that'd be a lovely place to, to conclude today's episode with the legacy of this team and the 1910 season. But before we do jump the gun and we get into that final segment, just looking back on this season and we look at the table and Kent won this by some margin, didn't they? Let's be completely honest. They played 26 matches. They won 19 of them, drew four and lost three. So they got 76% of their entire points tally. In second was Surrey with 57.14%. So that is a massive difference. This was domination from almost start to finish over the course of this season. So looking back on 1910, what would you say were the key moments, maybe some of the key individual performances that we should have been aware of, I suppose, from that dominant season for Kent County Cricket Club? Well, it's interesting because of the three games that we lost, one of them was right at the end. Um, against Surrey when we'd already won the won the title and you know we could have been all out for naught in both both innings and it wouldn't have mattered. I don't think that was the attitude they took going into the game, but it was it was they they had a bad end of season um, and they had a bad beginning of season actually because their first game against MCC as a practice game had to be abandoned when the king died um, and uh, then or maybe for his funeral, but anyway, it was it was a reason. To, and then they played Oxford University and were absolutely thumped, lost by eight wickets. Um, and then they got into the championship um, when they started to do um, to started to play very well. But um, it was, uh, it, you know, it was not a very or you know auspicious start to the to the way that the season the season went. But I think after that they 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 went. Really well. I mean, they, they we lost to Leicestershire. That was the first county game we lost, and about the about the fifth game of the season. But then it was just you know everybody went rolling along, um, and it wasn't until 
late July that they lost to Essex in a game, and then and then they won everything else until they hit, they they came against Surrey at the very end of the season. And as you say, they were um, they were very, I mean, way ahead of everybody else. In, and it really from mid-August, there was no doubt whatsoever who was going to win the title. It was almost impossible for them to lose. So in a way, there wasn't any absolutely, um, you know, crucial time that would say, ah, oh, yes, this is where the season changed. It didn't change. They, they, were, they were pretty well on top all the time. Um, there were a few um, great performances during the course of the season. Um, uh, a lot of people still talk about the the hundred. We're not talking. They don't talk about it. But I mean, it, it was well known that in in the game um, when Le when Leicester beat Kent um, at at uh, Tunbridge, which was you know a, a, a big surprise because Leicestershire weren't meant to be anywhere near as good as Kent. And um, but the, but um, Kenneth Hutchins scored a hundred in that game. And that was a game, that was an innings that people um, at the time felt was one that deserved to be on the winning side rather than the losing side. But that was, um, but, it, but he wasn't. So that, that was um, not particularly helpful. And there were a number of, there were a number of um, bowling performances, of course, that, that um, um, I mean, I'm just looking through now at, at some of the um, matches there. And, and you just look at it and you see the bowling, the bowling, it was Blythe and Fielder opening the bowling. And against Surrey, Blythe bowling 27 overs for seven for 55, opening the bowling. Um, in the next game, he gets four for 45, opening the bowling, and seven for 53, opening the bowling. Um, so it's, you know, those sort of statistics and those sort of figures are quite, you know, they're, they're quite impressive. When, when, in, in a game when he wasn't playing, uh, we see uh, Frank Woolley, Getting four for twenty-five and five for thirty-seven uh, against Somerset in uh, you know opening the bowling, so he he took over uh, when Colin Blythe was obviously absent, presumably with from his epilepsy. Um, there were um, I'm just looking to see if I can fish out any particularly important and interesting performances. There were I mean the point is that the whole team weighed in, and there weren't many absolutely staggering performances. I mean, against Yorkshire um, at Maidstone in, uh, in late July, um, the, um, which Kent won by an awful lot of runs, um, 179, I think it was, um, Blythe and Woolley bowled unchanged in both innings. And uh, Blythe got 11 wickets, Woolley eight, and there was one run out. So, um, they that that's the way that, that that was against Yorkshire, the strongest side, and Yorkshire and, and for example on the other side, Rhodes got five for forty three and and one wicket as well for for twenty five in the second innings. But I mean, uh, when it was Blythe against Rhodes, Blythe won hands down, and indeed Bully did really as well. So there were um, a lot of good performances um, without being without you being able to say that, that that it was a side that revolved around one man because we didn't um we revolved around uh, you know a, a team of of 11 there, there's a there's an there's a the last game at home against hampshire in the season um kent uh punter humphreys made 130 and james seymour 153 uh 
out of a total of 381. Their, their partnership for the for the second wicket was was the one that dominated the game there. That that was a sort of celebratory thing at Dover when they already knew they'd won the championship and they were just showing off, I think, as how good they were. Um, uh, another person we haven't mentioned actually yet is uh, as a bowler is um, uh, young Mr. Carr, who came in, D.W. Carr came in for nine games at the end of the season, took um, 60 wickets um, at 12. 0.16. So he was a he was a very useful addition at the end of the season. There's no doubt about it. And he went on to he was a leg break bowler. He went on to um, uh, play for England. Uh, I mean, he, it, a bit like Rehan Ahmed, he'd barely played any first class cricket, and he got into the England side with not much success. But he but you know he was uh, a, a a very useful addition at that at that level. And again, he was turning the ball away from the right handed batsman. There there um, that that's the the way that all um, all Kent people seem to take their wickets. You know, if you, um, it, I don't quite know what it is. I mean, there is a slope at Canterbury, but it's not that big. Um, so, um, but but I don't think there's one particular moment or one particular performance or um, that you can say they built their success around. They, they had 11, 12, 13 people who played on a regular basis, and they were all at some time or another made significant contributions to, to different different matches and different wins and that's the key isn't it it's the fact that everybody in this side contributed throughout the course of the season and just looking at the end of season stats actually in terms of run scorers and wicket takers Colin Blythe I mentioned beforehand he was the leading wicket taker for for Kent in the championship with 149 wickets at 13.77 so he was the third leading wicket taker in the entire competition behind Razor Smith of Surrey and Jack Newman of Hampshire and then with a bat in hand for Kent, Punter Humphreys, 1,483 runs at 38.02. Interestingly enough, also the third most in the 1910 County Championship, behind Johnny Tildesley and Alfred Hartley of Lancashire. So some real consistent performances, oh, yeah. some excellent individual knocks throughout the course of the season. But it was the fact that they didn't over-rely on certain players. And of course, it was amalgamated so excellently and so brilliantly by the leadership of the great Ted Dillon. So, Jonathan, I suppose I have to ask now, because I did allude to this question beforehand, but Kent had won in 1906, they won in 1909, they won in 1910 under Dillon, and then they won it again in 1913. So that era really was Kent dominating English county cricket. What would you say was the immediate legacy, and more importantly, the long-term legacy, of this team of 1910, just how much of a legacy did they leave behind, not only on Kent County Cricket Club, but also on English County Cricket? Well, it's a difficult one because what happened at the end of this era was that there was a world war. And that meant that we, there were four years where there was no cricket at all, four years when all, all the cricketers who'd been playing before the war became four years older, obviously. And, and uh, the, the players who had played for Kent before the war and then went on after the war, there really weren't that many. I mean, Frank Woolley and Punter Humphreys were the two obvious ones. Titch Freeman made his debut in 1918, but had only played one game or something, so he's really a post-war player. In 1914, rather, I mean. Um, and uh, so what happened was, because a number of players retired and 
two major members of the side were killed in the war, Kent were weaker, without any doubt, um, as they came into the post-war era. And maybe, I mean, I don't quite know why, but but we didn't build on the firm foundation that, that the McCandless um, Tunbridge Nursery had done, had, had given us. And uh, therefore, I suppose throughout the next, uh, you know, people have this natural tendency to look back on the glory days and say, oh, wasn't it wonderful when? And I mean, we do that now in Kent, you know, the 70s were the years that we, or, you know, but frankly, the 70s are 50 years ago now, and it's about time we, we started doing something um, different. And um, I, I think that, that the overall legacy was not, uh, not quite what we, ex what we would have hoped it to be. Um, there were certain things that I think Kent have always been known for and which these four or five seasons of glory um, helped to, to point out. One is the fielding. Um, Kent have always been a team where their fielding has been a very has been very highly valued. The 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 effort that goes into making the team full of good fielders is. I mean, nowadays I know everybody tries to do this, but I mean, even in the twenties and thirties, this was very important. And it was part. It was it was because it had been shown to be a successful and vital part of the of of the teams winning between nineteen oh six and nineteen thirteen, but also because we had really good wicketkeepers. And it's, um, I don't know what it is in the Kent water, but, you know, we can't do fast bowlers, but we can do wicketkeepers. And after Fred uh, Hewish died, uh, retired, sorry, though he has died now, but he, and, and, and that's it. After he retired, we had Hubble, Jack Hubble came in to keep wicket. And then we had Leslie Ames, um, who is, you know, uh, took it to a new level, I suppose, in many ways. And since then, we've had... Um, the likes of Godfrey Evans and Alan Knott, um, and uh, the one that I tip for the future, who I don't quite know what's going to happen, is is uh, Ollie Robinson, who's just gone left us and gone to Durham. He is a seriously good player um, and a seriously good wicketkeeper, and I would like to see him really do well. Although it's sad that he isn't uh, playing for us anymore. But I mean, the point is that that, that if you've got a good wicketkeeper um, who expects high things from his fielders. From the, from the fielding side, you have got a, a, a sort of extra man, in, in effectively, in, in the in the makeup of your attack and your and your ability to to limit the other side um, the other side scoring potential. So I think that's one thing that that we've always done um, is be very conscious and very and, and apply ourselves very much to the fielding. Um, but beyond that, it's difficult to see. Um, a legacy that that team left, except lovely memories in a way, which is it's a bit sad. Um, and as far as the county championship is concerned, the overall thing, um, well, as I already said, the the um, uh, the, the interwar years were dominated by by the northern clubs, and you know, apart from Middlesex, right at the beginning in the nineteen whenever it was nineteen nineteen and nineteen twenty sort of thing, um, uh, it was entirely Yorkshire, Lancashire, Nottinghamshire, Derbyshire. And um, the Southern clubs um, didn't win anything. And if you come after the Second World War is when it starts again, Middlesex come back in, thanks largely to Compton and Edrich and, and some of their other astonishing batsmen. 
Um, and then you get the Surrey years in the 1950s. Um, but Hampshire, Sussex, Essex in the, in the southern area, I mean, they didn't win their first titles until, you know, really very late. Hampshire won in 61, didn't they, their first one? But, Correct, yep. Um, but Essex um, was in the 90s, I think. Um, 1979 was Essex's first one. And then, of course, Sussex was only in the 2000s. So, so the, these southern clubs have never really been very strong. And, and in all, while Hampshire, Essex and Sussex have been winning, Kent haven't. So, um, uh, except in the 70s. So, um, it's, uh, I, I mean, it's very difficult to tell where the balance of power has gone, but in a way it's rather good because clubs like Leicestershire, Essex, Sussex, Glamorgan, um, uh, people like this, who uh, Worcestershire, who hadn't won any, game, any championship before, since the Second World War, it's been much more widely shared around. I think it's a good thing. Um, I mean, of course, I'd have liked it to be in Kent every single season, but um, that is possibly a bit unrealistic. Um, so um, it's difficult to know what the what the legacy has been. Um, I mean, there aren't any. Uh, there's nothing that says, "Oh yes, there isn't a sort of Kent style of cricket or anything like that." That that um, people would say, "Oh yes, he's obviously a Kent player." Um, uh, I, it's just um, we play. We've always had this tradition of. Um, the amateur ethos in a way or the or the or the the, the uh, we've had a lot of players who before the ab abolition of the difference between gentlemen and players would have been gentlemen and uh, uh, if you see what i mean um and i think that style of play sometimes to our disadvantage um has been something that we have um perhaps tried to to follow but um i can't i mean it's difficult to think of something that you'd say, okay, this is definitely something that we could say is a part of the legacy of the, of the pre-First World War squad, apart from one lovely painting and um, uh, a few trophies in our cabinet. It is very interesting, isn't it, really? Because in comparison to other teams that we've, we've spoken about in this series on the podcast, I think, for example, the Glamorgan side, of 1948 when I spoke with Dr Andrew Hignall about this they did have a direct legacy because obviously it was the first time that a Welsh side had lifted the county championship and members of the team which won in 1969 had actually spoken to members of that 1948 squad that had instilled that kind of, of fighting spirit inside them for that season so it is an interesting question and that is why I asked it with regards mm. to that legacy because there was that era of dominance those seven years in which Kent were either winning the county championship, which they did on four occasions, or in the top four, they were so competitive year in, year out. They had that outstanding academy set up, which was revolutionary back then with the Tunbridge Nursery. And yet after the war, obviously with those key losses from both retirement and a First World War perspective, things just never seemed to go back to the golden era. So... Who knows, Jonathan, maybe the golden era is going to come in the 2070s or 2080s. Who knows? That's the great thing about crickets. You never know what's around the corner. But yeah, the legacy of this side, I suppose it is quite difficult to, to actually come to terms with, isn't it? It's, it's difficult to describe. But what we can say about this team is that for the time, they were dominant. They were outstanding mm. cricketers. They were brilliant in the field. And we look at the individual milestones and the records and the, the individual legacies 
which members of this side left behind. The Kent team in 1910 definitely deserve their place in the history books of county cricket. Oh yeah, without any doubt. I mean, I think I think I haven't checked this out, but I would think that's probably up until that time the most dominant uh, that any county has been in one season. I mean, they won it by such a distance. I'm sure that since then there's somebody who can prove that another another title was was won more dominantly, if that's a if that's a word. Um, and certainly Surrey in the 50s had one or two seasons where they were way ahead of everybody else. But I think that is certainly, uh, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a year that we're very proud of. Of course, I suppose the 1906 gets um, more attention to it simply because that was the first time we won. Um, but uh, the, uh, 1909, 1910, 1913, still, and, and the players who played there, uh, played for us, are still very highly valued. I'm not sure how much during the 20s and 30s that the heroes of, the, of 1910, for example, would have been brought into or would have would have spent time with the players of the 30s to try and, and G them up. I know that now, um, in terms of the players of the 1970s, talking to the players today, um, that is quite highly valued. And, and um, people like um, John Shepherd, Graham Johnson, Alan Elam, who were all key members of the of the seventies setup, um, are you know spend spend time with the um, with the cricketers of today. But whether they give them any particular advice or not, I I I don't know. I mean, I think the cricketers that, that of today have their own ways of geeing themselves up and of of, of uh, um, motivating themselves. And and Kent have done it very well in the in the white ball uh, arena recently um it's just a question of trying to get consistency over the over the longer game and, and who knows it may come uh, but until we get a really decent fast opening bowler i'm not sure how, how long that'll be <laughs> only time will tell won't it only time will tell in the great game of cricket and cricket's most immortal competition the county championship we're just 70 days away who knows 2023 could be the year that those 45 years of hurt are finally put behind Kent County Cricket Club. We'll just have to wait and see. But honestly, Jonathan, this has been an absolutely fascinating discussion about the 1910 season and the characters and the, the protagonists from that county championship winning campaign. So just for myself, a massive thank you for taking the time to come on today. There was a reason I wanted you as the guest and unsurprisingly, you've been an absolute delight. So Jonathan, you're always welcome back here on the podcast in the future. But before we say our final goodbyes for the recording, do you have anything to plug or promote? Any social media channels, websites, businesses, charities? Well, anything like that? Uh, you can always go to the, uh, uh, the the Kent Cricket Club website and you'll, um, you'll find uh, information about the Kent uh, Cricket Heritage Trust which uh, is, is the trust set up to look after the memorabilia of the club and to promote the history and, and uh, um, you know, tell the world about what we've done over the years. So that's, that's one thing. And if you want to become a member of that, for only £10 a year, you can do so. And the details are on the website. Also, I suppose I'd like to give a quick plug to the Johnners Trust, which is the um, uh, trust that I also am involved with um, as a, uh, I'm one of the trustees along with... Um, Barry Johnston, son of Brian Johnston, and uh, one of my favourite broadcasters, Ali Mitchell. Um, and we, uh, in particular in the Johnners Trust, are trying to uh, give money to and promote and help 
uh, visually impaired and blind cricket. So I hope that uh, if anybody's interested, look up the Johnners Trust. Um, the website can be found through the Lord's Taverners, another another um, organization which I would also recommend to you. Um, but that's that's about it. I don't have my own website. That would be um, too expensive. Um, I, I've got nothing to say. <laughs> Well, Jonathan, we will, of course, leave the links to all of those websites in the podcast description below. So listeners, if you want to go and check out the Kent Cricket Heritage Trust, the Jonas Trust, and of course, the Lord's Taverners, please feel free to go and do so. You can find the description. You can find the links to all of those websites in the podcast description below. But that is it from us two here at the County Cricket Podcast for tonight's episode. To each and every single one of you wonderful listeners out there, thank you very much for tuning in. And as always, guys, we'll see you on the next one.